every now and again, a man must take one for the team for his craft in the name of science. This weekend, I put my body on the line. Against all the odds, I came out the other side unscathed. I tried the barbecue at the new meetup spot. <laughs> yeah, I was like, your body on the line? Where is this going? Yeah, I thank you for doing that, though, because I just could not believe it. You know, a park with a brewery and a barbecue joint that happens to be large enough to serve a large group. I'm like, no, Alex, this is too much like paradise. Such a utopia could not exist. And so you, you're like, all right, well, I'll go check it out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, so for those that aren't aware, we're having a meetup on the East Coast on April the 9th in Raleigh. Well, actually, it's a place just outside Raleigh called Nightdale, just to the east. But there's this uh, park there called Nightdale Station. And on one side is a Texas-style barbecue joint. And on the other side is a local brewing company called Oak City Brewing. And so, you know, it's maybe a five-minute walk between the two places, if that, if you're walking slowly. And uh, in the middle is like a kid's playground, a splash pad, like this little amphitheater type thing with a stage. Oh, it's so nice. What's great is since uh, we brought it up last episode, we now know that, uh, so yeah, I'm going. I've already bought my, my tickets. Yeah. My wife's going. Wes is going. Brent is going. Yes. And uh, my co-host from Coda Radio, Mr. Dominic, is also going. Oh, I thought that was a super secret, un untold truth. Well, by the time it comes, by the time this episode comes out, I think it'll be known. Oh, okay. So it, if not, then then you know what. Then you know, self-hosted crew should know. I was I was worried we'd broken an NDA there. No, no. Besides, he won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Meetup.com. Slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Now then, in the spirit of trying not to feel too old, can you believe that the Raspberry Pi is 10 years old this week? That is something else, huh? I, I would have, if, if you would have asked me off the top of my head, I, I think I don't, would, I don't know if I would have guessed more than seven for some reason. You know what I mean? You know, for me, it's been very strange because I left a retail job and went and did a, a, an MSc and then got a job and in my in my life, like my life kind of started as an adult almost after I left that Apple retail job. And that I know that I had a Raspberry Pi before then because that's how ah. I started getting involved in Linux in the first place was Unraid. The before times. A Raspberry Pi, yeah. And yeah, for that to be ten years ago, it just doesn't seem doesn't seem possible. Yeah. I still remember the introduction. Uh, Evan has a, a real distinct type of accent. And I, I know you all from over there, you have like different regions. What, what type is his accent? This is the guy that's the, the, the founder. We have a link He's in the show a, notes. I'm just going to go have a quick listen. Cause I, I, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Is, you haven't heard it? It's unusual. Yeah. 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 You know, you know who he sounds like? Uh, my, my equivalent would be Stuart from uh, Bad Voltage. Sounds like Stuart to me. But uh, he sounds a bit like, that mixed with popey yeah <laughs> yeah right right i'd say he's home right. counties so so that means like southeast of england sort of not inside london but sort of the 50 miles in a big circle around london yeah okay uh, yeah hmm. but it's a unique voice for sure he's a unique person and he, he saw real value in getting the computer down to a price that is nearly affordable by anyone and how important that would be for students too which is something we don't talk a lot about, but it's just so pivotal in those in those areas. Well, what's interesting is when Eben launched the Raspberry Pi, he writes that he only expected to sell somewhere between one and five thousand units 
total. And now they've sold millions of them, which is an incredible achievement. Uh, but his use case for it was to get computers, cheap computers into classrooms. Because let's think back 10 years ago, what version of Windows were we on? Windows 7, I think? Yeah, maybe. Maybe 8 at that point. Probably most people on XP, really, let's be honest. <laughs> maybe it was Windows 8 at that point. Uh, Mac OS was, what, just, just probably exiting Snow Leopard era? You know, so a lot's changed in that 10 years. The iPhone was still very new and... You know, people didn't have powerful phones and tablets and stuff in their pockets all the time. And so for the Raspberry Pi to come along in the schools seemed obvious. Chromebooks weren't really a thing yet. You know, it seemed obvious. But now it's a true hobbyist-grade tinkerer device. So there's this whole ecosystem around the Raspberry Pi. And I know that you find that a very powerful thing. I think that's the most important thing. And I think it's... I don't even think it's just hobbyists, Alex. I feel like... I don't even know if they should be, but I feel like a lot of little products out there have a Raspberry Pi at the heart of them, like secretly. Uh, in that interview that we'll have linked in the show notes, Evan's talking about how officially the foundation has put two Raspberry Pis on the International Space Station. But it turns out there's like way more actually up on the International Space Station just because a lot of the other products that NASA has deployed up there have Raspberry Pis built into them <laughs> just as... Uh, you know, I guess That's it cool. needs to do some heavy lifting or something. Yeah, I, I really, I, I, I find that both alarming and impressive at the same time. And I have to say, you know, for my use, the things are solid as a rock. I think for some reason early on they kind of got this reputation as um, unstable, not not production grade for some reason, and. Yeah, for the most case, I don't think that's ever been true. I think it's always just been a matter of resources. And recently, they've been closing the gap on, on that. And I, I, you know, I think we may even possibly be seeing a newer pie if it wasn't for the supply chain shortages. You know, if, if you think back as well, it was Raspberry Pi OS, and Ubuntu didn't support the pies. I don't remember exactly when Ubuntu made an official Pi image. But that was a turning point for me in making the Pi more legitimate. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's been great to see distro adoption. And I think the even bigger thing has been to see a lot of the Pi's hardware actually make it into the mainline kernel. That's been the really big thing because that's what took so long. It really took way too long for that to happen. And maybe one of the criticisms while we're still talking about the early days of the Raspberry Pi is like, we've kind of enumerated this on Linux Action News before, but they're not a Linux company, right? They're, they're a hardware shop. And Linux is the operating system that allows them to run and ship the Raspberry Pi desktop. Right? It's, a, it's a means to an end. They didn't start the Raspberry Pi because they're Linux fans. You, you follow me? And so they don't necessarily always have great insight into how the Linux community expects things to work. And so they've done things in the past like, added Microsoft repos without saying anything to the distribution or, uh, you know, maybe they just work on something for like two years and then just do a big code drop over the wall. And those things have been tricky for the free software community to assimilate, but I don't think they've ever been done out of malice. Maybe that's a good thing. You know, if, if everybody was beholden to the rules of the system, then they would never disrupt that system. You know, I'm not saying that everything the Pi Foundation has done is absolutely perfect. No company, no foundation, no charity, nothing like that is. But if you didn't 
have people that weren't beholden to that rules system, you know, that gatekeeper system, if you like, would we ever see any progress or would it be stymied progress? You know, so I don't know. Would it be chaos? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I think that's being a little melodramatic, but. No, it'd be chaos, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the other thing to talk, to just think about Raspberry Pis and something we've talked about a lot on the show is their energy use and Andrew wrote into the show and said energy costs here in the UK are just skyrocketing. I was just told my electricity bill is increasing by 80%. Yeah. Holy crap. Eight zero. Oh man. And then another increase will be expected in October. My current system is an I3 with an unraid and 40 terabytes of storage. Uh, and I'm running service loads in Docker. I also have two Raspberry Pis, uh, 3B running Pihole. And the entire setup uses around three kilowatt hours a day, which isn't bad, but it runs 25% of my electric bill. So I'm wondering if I can save any on that. I don't need to access my files 24-7 and notice that my Unraid does support S3 sleep, but I'd want some kind of automation around that. So I'm not always having to manually turn it on and off. Any thoughts or options, guys? Well, what's interesting is over the years, many people have asked me just a simple question, which I've just flippantly said no to which is should i worry about something simple like spinning down unused hard drives anything it's using three or four watts to keep that hard drive spinning who cares it's a couple of pounds maybe that a month or maybe maybe even that across a year generally the the benchmark i used was uh one watt for an entire year powered on was about one pound give or take and that was when using you know that's when electricity prices were about 15 pence a kilowatt hour what i'm seeing now in the uk is energy prices being 50 or 60 pence a kilowatt hour and that is a massive i don't need to tell you guys (laughs) a massive difference right and that kind of changes the equation significantly and so one of the angles we wanted to talk about on today's show was the energy usage of Raspberry Pis, like Chris, you can give us some really good insight from all of your monitoring you do in the in the RV, and start to think about: Does it make sense to have that old dual Xeon box in the basement? Probably not anymore. Does it make sense to keep an old i3 system with you know forty terabytes of storage, like Andrew writes in? Well, it depends how many hard drives. Is hard drive density worth considering? You know, number of watts per drive doesn't change, but you can change the number of drives quite easily by going from, let's say, 10 4-terabyte drives to 4 10-terabyte drives. And that could save you the price of a drive at 50 pence a kilowatt hour within a year. Yeah. Oh, boy, Alex. So when I decided to go... Actually, I'll I'll back up. I'll back up and I'll I'll, I'll address a few things I think you got to think about uh, before you go this route and really go to the energy savings. So when I first started building the setup for Jupes, uh, I built it around an x86 system, an x86 NAS-based system. And um, I thought that was the way to go because I consider myself to be somebody who really optimizes for performance. You know, I like it to, I like everything to be as fast as possible. Yeah, that's, that's why I'll get, a, I'll, get a, I'll get a laptop with 64 gigs of RAM so that way I know that three or four times a year I'm running five or six VMs at once, I'm going to have a fast system. And so I, I, I kind of went big. I went with a uh, 12 terabyte array setup and an x86 box and um, 
the issue immediately became the power usage because I'm in a very restricted environment where uh, I am trying to run off solar and not use generator as much as possible, especially with the price of fuel getting higher. And so I pretty quickly pivoted to the Raspberry Pi after I asked myself a few basic questions. And this is what I want to convey to you all. How much performance do you really need? Initially, I would have said all of the performance. But then when I started thinking about it, I thought, well, do I really need 12 terabytes of videos here? Or could I offload some of those videos and ISO images and pictures and documents to somewhere where it's much cheaper to run that storage and then just cache two terabytes of local stuff? What's like the two terabytes of stuff I really needed? And then once I kind of started thinking about that, I realized, well, you know, if I optimized on my TV end, I actually don't even need GPU decoding support. And then all of a sudden, a Raspberry Pi is looking pretty good. If I know I have hardware decoding support in my set-top box, then I just took a whole category of requirements away from my server box. And I started thinking about that a little bit more. I thought, well, how fast do I really need my CPU? How many applications am I running? And I threw up a Raspberry Pi 4, and I threw my applications on there. And I was blown away by the fact that I found it reasonable. And when I use my home assistant system, or when I'm using Rantio, or whatever you call it, or sync thing, generally, I can say, yeah, I, I think I could, I could stand for it to be a tad faster. But my, my expectations are more about nailing that, that power envelope and less about nailing that performance envelope now. And so I'm perfectly willing to just have a slightly, slightly sluggish home assistant setup for just total, total optimization on the power side. And it was just a series of questions like that I went through, like, okay, how much storage do I need? How fast do I need this to be? What services am I actually going to use? Do I need to optimize for Grafana and Node Red? Do I really need to use those things or could I just get away with just Home Assistant and built-in automations? And I kind of just decided simpler and lower power was better. And then I realized there's also all these benefits of the fact that because they're $35 computers, I can literally have a spec for spec spare sitting in a drawer that I can just pop right in. And so then I was like, well, all right. And I don't care if they melt, <laughs> you know, changed all kinds of stuff at that point. But initially it was really just totally reassessing what are my actual performance requirements and being really honest with myself and realizing my family doesn't care if the stuff's not screaming fast too. We were talking about this just before we pressed the record button and, you know, let's take that 10 year lifespan of the Pi as a great example you think about how capable an x86 box was 10 years ago and you think about where the raspberry pi 4 is now as a line in the sand and you know the pi 4 is what two years old at this point so it's already a generation behind what the pi 5 may or may not be and i look at what that x86 box gave me and you know the size of hard drives you know i can get 16 18 20 terabytes in a single external drive now that used to be my entire server more than 10 years ago and yes i know video sizes are bigger and etc etc and whatever what have you but this speaks to your point chris is that there is a cost to everything and if you want to hoard all the tv shows that god created 
there is a cost to that, you, you know, not just in the number of platters that you need to have spinning, but obviously the energy required to have those platters spinning 24-7. So, you know, you can save quite a bit just by doing things like S3 Sleep with your server. Uh, you know, obviously if you do that, you have to bear in mind there's going to be some latency when you press play in Plex or Kodi or whatever it is whilst the server wakes up and realizes what's going on and degrogs itself. But, uh, you know, the other thing you could do is try starting small, small improvements. Like I said before, change your hard drive density or do things like hard drive spin down, that kind of thing. And just do the low hanging fruit first, see what difference that makes and then optimize from there. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support this here show. So what is Linode? Well, ha, I'm glad you asked. It is fast, reliable cloud hosting. You got to go try it for yourself. It's what we use for everything we've built that's hosted in the cloud for the last two and a half years. You want to try something like a, a research project? You want to learn something, push a machine? Linode systems are great for that. They're super fast. They got 40 gigabit connections coming into them hypervisors, and they got 11 data centers all over this here world. So you can pick something close to you. And then, I mean, if you're a crazy cat, and why not? Because you're rolling in there with $100 in credit, you can try out their new MVME PCIe storage. MVME PCIe storage, local repo caches in their data center, 40 gigabit connections to the hypervisor, AMD Epic CPUs for the high-end CPU systems. You see what I'm saying about performance? It's wild over there. So you got to go check it out if you're a performance hound. But if you just want something straightforward, maybe you're not a large business. Maybe you don't need a ton of performance. Maybe you just have, I don't know, a portfolio you want to run online or a GitLab instance for goodness sake, like a good lad. Well, they got systems over there that'll do that for you too. Systems that are like five bucks a month. Pricing's 30 to 50% cheaper than those big duopoly hyperscalers that want to lock you into their cray-cray platform that's totally weird and unique to them. They don't do that over at Linode. And if you ever need any help, they got the best supports, 24-7s. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I think you could even call them on Christmas, and I think they'd answer the phone. <sighs> Maniacs. You know? Maybe somebody gets paid extra special. Then maybe they get Santa's cookies that day. I don't know what they do, but somehow Linode covers the gap. They got great support, great performance, tons of options, a beautiful UI, a dashboard that tells you the info you need to know about your system right when you look at it, and so much more. But I suppose, why not put it over the top? You could support the show, keep us going, and get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash SSH. So Christian writes in, my basement flooded last week, and I've been looking for the best leak detection sensor and i was wondering if there's anything that either of you would recommend that's wi-fi based i know there are some zigbee and z-wave options but specifically i'm hoping for wi-fi thanks christian ah very good i absolutely do recommend a few uh z-wave devices but uh i, I you know i think i know of a i'm not sure if it's wi-fi or not Gosh, Wi-Fi, Alex, do you know any off the top of your head that are good Wi-Fi devices? I don't. And I think the problem with the Wi-Fi in that situation is just the energy usage. Unless yeah. you're going to leave the water sensor plugged in all the time, which if it's a water sensor, you probably don't want to do. Uh, Wi-Fi is just too power hungry. I know that uh, in, in my attic right now and underneath my uh, air conditioning unit, I have one of those um, 
Aotech water leak sensors at Zigbee, and that just plugs straight into Home Assistant using the Con B2. That works perfect. That's the one I recommend. Um, if you are a Ring user, you they they Ring actually makes a water sensor. That's Z-Wave, but Ring manages all the Z-Wave stuffs for you. So maybe that's easier. I don't know. But honestly, for this kind of thing, this, if you could, really is the chance to get into something like Z-Wave or Zigbee, get the stick and do that kind of stuff. But if you know of a better way with Wi-Fi, I'd totally love to know, especially if it does work with Home Assistant. Let us know at selfhosted.show slash contact, or even better, send us a boost with a new podcast app that supports value for value at newpodcastapps.com. I thought we'd go for a little trip down memory lane here with some interesting Raspberry Pi projects. And one of my first ever Raspberry Pi projects use cases was actually, this was before I got the NVIDIA Shield and I was still on the hunt for a media center PC. I used to have an actual computer as my home theater PC, like a madman. And, uh, Along came the Raspberry Pi with its MPEG-2 hardware decoder, and I threw something called Raspberry MC on it, which was written by a chap called Sam Nazarko at the time, which was just a, an XBMC kind of build for the original Raspberry Pi. In my opinion, especially like with the Pi 3, this was the use case. The use case for yep. me. Like, it wasn't server-ready, the early Pi's, but the use case was uh, XBMC, Cody, and uh, hooking it up to the television. The other use case, funny enough, also involved hooking it up to a screen and HDMI. Is, uh, I know my buddy Noah would go around and put them on the back of monitors in studio and use them for countdown clocks and like IRC chat room dedicated systems. And the beauty was it's just the, just the monitor because the Raspberry Pi would be like taped, duct taped to the back of the screen. <laughs> And it's great for that kind of stuff too. Just like drive a display. Yeah. And so obviously Raspberry MC became or morphed into open source media center, OSMC. And they have now got their own website and a whole bunch of hardware that they offer, uh, you know, specifically cases, generally speaking, for the Raspberry Pis. But I saw an interesting thing on Kickstarter this week. Um, it's, it's a bit old, but I think they're starting to actually ship units now. It was from late last year. Uh, from the people that make the Argon case, they've made a new NAS case called the Eon. What do you think of this? This is too cool. I mean, this is seriously too cool for school. This looks like some Cylon system from Battlestar Galactica. Like, um, really cool looking. This has got to be the sleekest case ever. Okay, so let me let me walk you through it. This thing has space for four SATA hard drives. For yep. some reason... They can only take two three and a half and two two and a half hard drives because of the shape of the enclosure. It doesn't make any sense to me either. I see you pulling a face at the other end. Yeah. They call it a cyberpunk inspired design with space grade aluminum. It's in a triangular tower shape with um, a metal bottom and dark black glass sides with metal trim and then the pie goes in the bottom section and then the hard drives, they go in the top of the stack vertically. So you imagine a triangle tower that goes up and then there's SATA hard drives that slide in top like a toaster oven and plug into a little SATA daughter card that is then hooked back into a Raspberry Pi. I mean, it looks great if they made a version that fit four three and a half inch hard drives, this would pretty much be 
the perfect low power energy prices are going through the roof home now, wouldn't it? Yeah, the only downside is, and I, 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 I do appreciate the build of materials here is more expensive than your average bear, but the dang things like on the low end, $730 without the Raspberry Pi. That's the only gotcha, right? Is you take something that is such a beautiful budget machine and after you add Pi and drives, you're like sitting at $1,500 all in. Okay. That's, uh, that's a bit of an un, unclearable obstacle. Jesus. $730. Yeah. I didn't see that. Then again, if you're, sh- if you're shopping for low power, you know, if you put solid states in this thing, it would be a pretty low power NAS. And so that initial upfront cost these days may be justifiable if, if you know, over a five-year period, the power draws 80% less than an equivalent PC NAS. Maybe, but you have to keep it for five years. You can't get bored after two and then buy something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the Pi 5 is just around the corner too, and you're probably going to have to throw out the whole bottom end of this thing. Exactly. Th- this is actually what the compute module is perfect for. And I think the compute module for me, the Raspberry Pi 4 compute module, the CM, as they call it, takes it to the whole next level, right? Because you get much more connectivity with these carrier boards. You get PCI slots, potentially. You can get SATA ports, potentially. Uh, This one that I've been experimenting with, it has dual PCI gigabit NICs on the carrier board. So that I feel like the compute module is really where this kind of this Argon PyNAS, what it really should be is the carrier. It should be its own carrier board with these SATA ports and everything. And then you open up the bottom and you pop in a CM4 or CM5 or whatever it is. Right. Absolutely. As long as it's future proofed for at least, I don't know, three, four generations of Pi, something. Like oh, well, I, you know, maybe if they made the if they, if they made the carrier board module or modular or something, because they don't, I mean, how do they know if maybe the Raspberry Pi folks decide they change the interface? Although probably not. I bet you it's something they remain pretty consistent on. I hope so, because you look at the GPIO pins, and they've been remarkably unchanged. They haven't changed at all since the very first Pi. Yeah. Even with the zeros. Yeah. Yeah, so it's potential. I think it has real potential. I don't think the accessory market and the high-end enthusiast market has wrapped its head around the CM4 yet just because of the supply chain shortage. It's so hard to get them. They're too hard to get, yeah. I won't build a Pi-based server system without the CM4 now. That's the only way I'm going to build these. I'm not going to use a standard Raspberry Pi 4 carrier board anymore. And you can also get some of these with EMMC on there, so you're not stuck to using dumb old SD cards. It's, it's like everything I've always wanted in a Raspberry Pi. So let me ask you a question. What's your body count of pies right now? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I definitely have five or six Raspberry Pies, and then I have two CM4s, which I felt silly when I bought them, my CM4s. I'm like, I don't really need these right now. And now I'm so glad I have all these because I'm not going to get any for a while. It sounds like maybe even another couple of years, really, before supplies return to normal. And I love them. I think I have about the same number. I know I mocked you in a previous episode for having too many, and we staged a Pi intervention, but I've got two Pi 4s on uh, two 3D printers. I've got another one running my DNS. I've got another one in the UK doing backup stuff at my sister's house. I've got seven 
raspberry pies now i think about it <laughs> you know what we ought to do right bring them all together giant pie cluster you know uh, this is something actually that i didn't put in the show notes but now i'm going to talk about it is the use case for raspberry pies as kubernetes clusters yeah like compute units i right forgive me but i don't get it it's it's about training in my opinion maybe but then you're running arm code and it's always a bit hit and miss no 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 i think you gotta i think you gotta think about it alex from like the whole base principles like just grasping provisioning devices at scale like just maybe because i'll tell you why i say this is i i had a buddy who had like one of these uh you've probably seen these these pie racks that you got like a dozen pies and like they this acrylic rack badass and i yeah. really want one because i know of how yeah, cool yeah. it looks yeah and i was like so what do you got this for right i mean obviously it's a conversation starter right uh and he was starting just starting some training course on learning kubernetes and all of that and being able to provision all of those machines right there by clicking some buttons it like it totally wrapped his head around what it was he was learning it like brought it made it all real for him you know, he doesn't do it on Raspberry Pis anymore. I've always thought, you know, just spin up uh, 30 VMs. Who needs all the hardware? But uh, if you got the Pis laying around, it is a fun project. Well, that was always my argument was, you know, one x86 box could replace <laughs> 40 Raspberry Pis. But yeah, there is a bare metal angle to provisioning Raspberry Pis and picture sure. booting and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of fun stuff you can do with, with them. So, I mean, there is a use case. Like my grandmother used to say, turn off that damn light. What do you got, stock in the electric company? You know, there is that angle now, too. It's a whole new world. I have a bit of a fun story to share on the show, which I've been meaning to tell for a little while. It's only a little one. Uh, about the genesis of the Heimdall Docker dashboard. So, back in, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, something like that, when I was still with Linux server, uh, one of the devs over there, Cody, who's actually the lead dev behind fanart.tv, I said to him one morning on uh, IRC, I'd love it if we had a single app I could load that just had a bunch of icons with each of my containers running on it, but was also smart enough to figure out which containers were actually running and talk a little bit to them and just show me a couple of nuggets of data about each app. And that single idea spawned Heimdall. So, I mean, I'm not going to claim total credit for Heimdall because he wrote the thing. But uh, that idea was actually stolen from an internal Red Hat system that we have called Rover, which is just a bunch of icons on a screen. <laughs> which And you can pin favorites and that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, that would be pretty cool if I had that for my home server. Uh, and since then, there have been a proliferation of home dashboards that we see all over the self-hosted subreddit all the time people love their dashboards over there oh my god they should have a no dashboard filter and take out probably 70 percent of the content yeah and i've actually just recently decided i'm going to break down and do this not so much for myself necessarily but actually for the for the spouse so that she has a bookmark she can go to and figure out what's going on when i'm not around Yes, super important in getting my father on board with it when I, I set his server up for him last summer was I did a Homer dashboard. And for him, he doesn't really want to have to learn the nuances of all the different domain names I set up for him. Yeah. So for him, he just goes to home.domain 
And that's all he has to remember is just to type home into the address bar and up it comes. And then all of the services are just there as a nice icon. There are lots of others that I've used over the years. Uh, Flame stands out as being a good one. This one is quite minimalist. It's just a bunch of text links that you can customize with uh, absolutely no interactivity whatsoever. But it's it's quite pleasing to look at. Another one that's quite popular is Organizer. And this one puts stuff behind a bunch of different tabs effectively within a single tab. Uh, so you've basically got a, a list of icons on the left-hand side. And then each app, you can just click through and scroll through. And, you know, I I still find myself after all these years, I've set up several of these dashboards including Heimdall, including Homer, and eventually they they kind of suffer from technical debt and configuration drift, and they don't end up reflecting reality. And this is where Flame comes in as being particularly nice, is it actually hooks into your Docker engine and live updates based on what the containers you have actually running are, which is it's a killer feature. Hmm. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. And of course, you're supporting this show. Yeah, I'm talking about Tailscale, the zero config VPN that installs on any device you got in minutes. Easy to manage your firewall rules for you. Easy to work from home. Easy to access your stuff from anywhere. This is the solution I finally went with to get to my treasure trove of information in Lady Jupes. Like when I first started setting up my documentation and all my offline repository of information, I opted to just not even bother with the VPN thing. Because even even traditional WireGuard, I just wasn't super happy with it. Not only do I have carrier-grade NAT, but I needed something that I could get up and go on a new system kind of just spontaneously, without really any pre-planning. And TailScale has nailed that. It lets my devices connect directly to each other. It uses WireGuard's noise protocol encryption, and you build your own mesh network using the best VPN security stuff in the biz. You can quickly and easily create a secure network between your servers, computers, and your cloud instances. I got a message from mom last night about something wrong with a service she was connecting to while I was home. I flipped on TailScale, connected to the system here in the studio that she was trying to use, and I fixed the problem from the couch in 10 seconds. And I, you know what? Yeah, like, I, I mean, maybe it's been a month since I had to use it on my iPhone, but it was so great to be able to immediately put my iPhone on that mesh network and get access to those systems. And it just worked flawlessly. So I've got it on iPhones. I've got it on my Raspberry Pis. I've got it on x86 servers. I love it for all of that stuff. Just a stable IP for all my systems. No matter where I'm at, it stays consistent. And the devices only connect after you sign them through your own identity provider, whatever that might be. So you can easily enforce multi-factor authentication. You can deauthorize machines without having to get to that machine if somebody's moved on, etc. So it's really flexible in that way. And because I know that these are always on VPNs, I know that it's always there. It's always there for me. And they have super DNS-friendly stuff in there. So you can add a DNS server to your Tailscale network and have some real magic. It's dead simple to use, and it's something I use every single day. You're going to love it. I'm sure you've probably heard about it. Now's the chance to sign up, support the show, and get up to 20 machines free at tailscale.com slash self-hosted. I just had a proper next level. I'm living in the future moment. As we were recording, I just heard it start raining, and I was smoking uh, a picanha, which is like a top side of sirloin earlier this afternoon. 
and I thought, did I leave something outside on the deck? So I just bring up Blue Iris in the browser as we're recording, have a quick look, and then message my wife and say, can you please save my wood chips I left outside and my smoker (laughs) stuff? (laughs) You know, seriously, the camera systems, I haven't talked about it a lot recently, but I'm still, I still find it really useful to have on on my system. It was uh, uh, over a month ago. We when the when the temperatures just crashed here in Washington, uh, we had a rat get in Lady Jupes, and we suspected there was a rat. But having that, I had a camera detect a motion event, which got a snapshot of the rat. Like you know, just was that kind of confirmation. Is that why you asked me about rats in the show? I was so confused at the time. <laughs> what did I? Yes. <laughs> Probably had rats on the brain. I got that little guy, too, let me tell you. Oh, but not after it inflicted serious damage on Lady Jupes. Wiring damage. We have a listener, listener Cole, who's coming up to the junkyard this weekend to help us do some fixes. We We did some bypassing, but yeah, yeah. So I'm glad, but I'm glad I had that camera in there because I knew I had to take action immediately, you know? Damn. Well, on a happier note, Lucas writes in, I have a Pi running regular backups from my server via R snapshot. Some time ago, the backup wasn't working and I didn't notice for a few weeks. Do you have any suggestions on monitoring that backup? I'm thinking of something that reads the R snapshot logs, sends me an email maybe in case of an error. Thanks for the feedback. Love the show. Greetings from Germany. Lucas. Hmm. Seems like there's so many options here. Um, and, and, and I'm going to resist the temptation to recommend something else entirely. like like Borg backup or uh, something else. So I'll let you answer this. Well, I think the obvious one for me is something like healthchecks.io. Uh, so what this does is when you run a cron job, you append to the end of your script or your bash command that you're putting into cron uh, a little curl uh, with a UUID in it. So curl HTTPS URL uh, slash, and then you put your little UUID in there. And what that does is it pings the health check server and says, hey, this uh, this job just ran. And what you can then do is configure timeouts to say, right, I want this job to run every day and the grace period is six hours. Because sometimes a backup can take six hours to complete. So uh, it reduces the noise and the false positives you might get there sometimes. Ah. But the other really cool thing that you can do, and uh, some of the guys in our Discord have been uh, experimenting with health checks a lot, of which there is a self-hosted version, by the way, as well. Don't be confused and think it's just a service. It's not. Uh, What you can also do is put a slash start at the beginning of your script to that same URL with the UUID as well. And then you can monitor how long specific jobs take. So you can look and say, oh, my backups on average take two minutes, 30 seconds. This one took four hours. Why is that? And then you can go and look at the logs because... You can append logs to health checks as well. If you didn't know that, you can use curl uh, to do that as well. So, I mean, for me, yes, you could go and, you know, reinvent the wheel and have something that does log passing and alert manager with Prometheus and get as complex as you like. But really, for me, keep it simple, because uh, if you don't, it'll just you just won't keep on top of it if it's a personal system. Yep. Yep. And uh, if it's going to send you an alert. Make sure it's sending you an alert somewhere you're actually checking and that you won't just ignore that doesn't just end up in some folder on Gmail or something like that. All right. Well, our next email comes in from Norm. Norm writes in, hey, guys, love the show. Self-hosted alone is making me want to purchase a membership to support you. Thank you, Norm. 
selfhosted.show slash SRE for this show or jupiter.party for all the shows. Independent podcasting needs support more than ever. He says, I have two questions uh, but, and one more than more than the other. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the important one. Uh, he says, in your failing at scale episode, you brought up Home Assistant and breaking changes with Z-Wave, Z-Wave JS, etc. You also mentioned waiting for matter, something that I've been considering as well. Would you mind giving your opinion on if someone should wait for matter if they have zero Z-Wave devices yet? I've been considering getting some, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet, and I'm wondering if I should wait. Ah, the age-old question, should I buy now or should I wait? The thing about matter is certainly for the moment at least, and with the chip shortage I expect this to continue into the foreseeable future, is right now it's vaporware. So you would be waiting for a set of promises that are coming at some point in the future. I know people have said it's going to be in 22, but who knows? So if you need something now, buy it now. It's like buying a graphics card or a laptop or anything like that or a car. Like if you need something now, buy it now. If you're just tinkering, uh, buy maybe a minimum viable set of Z-Wave devices so you can get your feet wet. Um, and then really go whole hog into the matter stuff when it does finally land. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I pretty much agree. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that kind of goes over what you can expect is going to remain compatible. Here's the thing about matter. It's basically Zigbee. It's based on Zigbee. So it is very likely that some Zigbee devices will be software updatable to matter devices. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. That might just be what you need. But Norm, I'm also going to put a link in here about uh, some devices you can buy now that should be compatible. Something else you consider, another route, depending on what device you're looking for, is uh, if you're already an iOS house, you could just go for HomeKit compatibility. That'll work over Wi-Fi. HomeKit is a stable interface to Home Assistant. It actually works pretty well. Um, but, 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 but not all cases. Some HomeKit devices require special Bluetooth adapters or something like that. So just be careful there. And I'd say, like Alex said, just buy now. Don't wait. And I would err on the side of Zigbee devices myself if I were having to repurchase right now. That's what my personal choice would be. And don't cheap out on the Zigbee bridge if you're going to do that. I tried with the Sonoff CC 20 something, 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 and then replaced it almost immediately with the Conbi 2 bridge. And since then, my automations and Zigbee devices have been 99.9% .9 reliable, which really is great. My Hue Bridge, I unplugged it a few weeks ago, and it was a really nice moment in my life just to be able to go, nope, don't need this anymore. Goodbye. Yeah, that is nice. That is really nice. I think a lot of the large brands are going to offer – this is where I would do my research, Norm, is – I would research what Zigbee controller may be upgradable to matter if possible. And I would also look at what home smart manufactured people are uh, already in the matter alliance. There's a lot of them that are already in there, so they're likely going to support it down the road. But such a crappy time for the part shortage and something, such a crappy time to be forced to upgrade the Z-Wave stuff. Now, to be clear, Z-Wave is still 100% viable. And if you installed Home Assistant... You know, even like I think within the last year, you're going to be able to use Z-Wave JS and you're going to be fine. You're going to be golden because Z-Wave JS is well supported. The particular problem that I and many early Home Assistant users have run into is that the migration to Z-Wave JS went real bad. 
real bad. It's one of the few times I had to hit the old eject button and go back and restore an image real bad. And I am not going to make that transition most likely without completely redoing my home assistant setup because you have to realize that this transition when I migrate is going to be a lot worse for me than somebody who's just setting up today. If you're just setting up today, it's going to be painless. If you're me, every single device gets a new name. All the old devices remain, but they're no longer were functional. Every device shows up with a brand new name, a new ID, top to bottom. That means every automation, every script, every trigger, everything that refers to a device anywhere, every button, everything has to be touched. It's as bad as redoing the entire thing from scratch. And I'm just not going to do that. And so I just wish the timing could have been different. I understand the Home Assistant team needs to move on with Python. I, I don't advocate staying on old versions of Python. Um, and I realize that this version of Z-Wave has been unsupported for a while. And Z-Wave devices are still good. The Z-Wave JS implementation on Home Assistant is great. So you could absolutely go the direction of Z-Wave today and be happy and probably have no problems and use them for years. It just happens to be that I got bit as an early adopter, and now I'm kind of in a stuck position. Me and thousands of other users. Okay, his second question is really about Lady Jupes, which, yes, he's correct, is my RV. Jupes as in Jupiter. The last episode said that Home Assistant is integral and necessary to the RV. I'd love to hear a detailed rundown of your setup and devices. Thanks and keep up the great work, Norm. Jeez, that could be a great, that could be an entire episode, Alex. I was Don't just thinking think? the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, we should go into that. You know what would be a fun one is when you're actually here sometime the next time you're in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. All right, we'll do that. Put put that in the back pocket and keep it there. Maybe we'll be on the road and we could do we could do that episode from the RV. Ooh. That'd, be really, that'd be really great too. <laughs> I like that even more. All right. That we'll put that one in the back pocket for sure. So we'd love to hear from you, selfhosted.show slash contact. Questions, topic ideas, projects you think we should know about or look into, and your ideas on ways to save power and still have a lot of fun with home self-hosting or even small business self-hosting. Let us know, selfhosted.show slash contact. Both Alex and I do try to check that inbox. So again, it is selfhosted.show slash contact. And thank you to our SREs out there, our subscribers who make the show possible. As a thank you, we're giving you a post-show. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. I know we talked, we, we brainstormed earlier, so we have several possible post-show topics. But we'll have to just pick. We'll pick a good one. It's about the price of fish. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's going to be the price of fish, actually. And the plight at third world. That's a quote from <laughs> one of my favorite British film four movies. Well, there you go. Uh, also, you can become a network member. <laughs> a network member supports all the shows for like the cost of two memberships, and you get access to self-hosted and the post show. You get Linux action news totally ad-free. You get the Linux unplugged live stream, which is like two Linux shows in one. Uh, you get Coda Radio ad-free, all of it at Jupiter.party. It's a great way to support independent podcasting. And don't forget meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for all the details for our fantastical East Coast Mystery Tour meetup. It's coming on April 9th. I would love to see you there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Pew, pew, Chris and Badger, go to the park. I am uh, at Chris Elias on the Twitter. And, you know, we got a Telegram group. If you like to do Telegram, you can find that at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. Well, as always, thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 66.